This is Thomas DePaulo. This is Max. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Good evening. This is Will. And welcome to the Green Box. <laughs> On this very special episode of The Green Box, we celebrate Halloween with a discussion of the balance between horror and player agency in role-playing games, as well as the narrative function of themes like nihilism and fatalism. Afterward, we take a look at the horror toolkit for the RPG Fate, see what it has to offer, and what we can steal for use in other games. I just wanted to have a discussion about some of the arguments. I don't know if arguments is the right word. Discussions we see over on the Night of the Opera server about Delta Green and I guess Call of Cthulhu uh, games in general, where there is just sort of a type of like baked in nihilism with a lot of the published scenarios and modules. Just want to know what you guys thought of that. Well, I'll take the hard line by the book approach. I think nihilism is cool. Um, I think it, I think I like that aspect of the setting. It's it's a um, it's a thing that I that I like to a theme that I like to play with when I run games. Uh, the theme that nothing really matters is 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 one um, that I think you can get a lot of play out of in a format where you got a bunch of players who have agency, but maybe their actions don't matter. But then ultimately, you know, if nothing matters, then the only thing that matters is what the players decide matters. And I think that's that's very Delta Green. That's not nihilism. That's like absurdism. Well, that's also Delta Green. Well, I mean, yes, that's, absurdism is probably my favorite style of running games. I think that's sort of the point, is that the world becomes absurd because you realize we have an entire civilization crafted upon lies we tell ourselves that have no relation to the way the universe actually works. Yeah, but then you take one step further and go, well, if this entire civilization doesn't matter, if this is all there is, then that's all there is. And I'm deciding right now that this matters. How does how does that uh, affect the way you approach writing and running games? I, when I write a scenario, am now more than before trying to think of what is it that the, what parts of this outcome can be altered by the player's actions. Interesting. So you're coming at it from like a results perspective, like what results can they achieve? I'm saying that I've written scenarios before where either the player's involvement is unnecessary or act or ends up being actively harmful. And I think that's fine thematically, but I think that it's after a certain point unsatisfying to <coughs> write and run games where uh, the correct option is to do nothing. There's a couple of scenarios like that where, you know, when you do nothing, nothing really changes. I think Will ran one for me a couple of days ago on April Fool's. <laughs> I guess we should just go ahead and get to it while, while it's still fresh on our memory. Yeah, it was uh, Artifact Zero. You can name Zero. and shame it. I was the, it is the most infamous of the Debt Willer scenarios. I was, I was the April Fool for playing Artifact Zero. There's a couple of his that people say, like, nothing you do really matters at the end of it. And uh, I don't know how I feel about that statement. I disagree that that's true about Artifact Zero. It doesn't matter um, to your survival what you do, but destroying the big antenna is beneficial for the world. 
Yeah, there is there is a win state even if the win state does not include you figuring out how to save yourselves. I think that's called a, a pyric victory, right? Pyric victory, yeah. Pyric. I just dislike it because the mecha- the mechanism by which the the threat operates is completely one hundred percent opaque to the players occurring. Might as well be outside the game world. The solution that you have to like shock the shit out of yourself. Not, not the solution. The solution I think Willie did Will did a good job of introducing. But I'm just saying the whole concept of tilling gas radiation being like transmitted and building up is not something that is ever visible to the people playing the game. I think a big problem with this conversation and the framing of the choice is that. A lot of times people don't seem to understand the appeal of quote-unquote nihilism and cosmic horror, and so it gets framed as inherently inferior to playability. Well, is it that people don't see the appeal, or is it that people don't enjoy it? Because I can see not enjoying it. I can really, I can understand no, that. I can see why it appeals to other people. I just think that I'm playing a goddamn game, and I want my actions to affect something in the game world. That's the whole magic of RPGs. I mean, I think it's both. I think it's... If you don't enjoy it, it's difficult to understand why other people would enjoy it. And it's really just that that loss of agency is a big part of the appeal, uh, or maybe the struggle with agency. Which actually is kind of interesting because Delta Green, the way it's framed by by the uh, the boys at Arc Dream, at least as a game about consequences, would in theory seem to be a game that is about nothing but agency. Know what I mean? Like if it's if it's framed as, I'm not saying that all the scenarios follow this you know, model. They all, Many of them don't. Most of them don't, in fact. But if it is framed as a game about consequences, then, like, that's... What, what is that if not agency? That's... Um, when people... One of the things that people... When people, people talk about Unknown Armies, they say that the horror in that game is that every decision you make does matter. Yes. That you can't hide behind this excuse of, I live in an uncaring universe. No, every the world around you is profoundly shaped by your choices. And that's the biggest horror of all. Yeah, and that seems to be kind of that's something that I've been trying to kind of work more on, not not letting not letting the players kind of gloss over how they dispose of the bodies or whatever, but actually going into detail, okay, what do you do? How do you, you know, how do you hide these? And what's what's your next step? What uh do you did you did you take the fake ID off of the body of your fellow agent who died? Is he's a fed, his prints are in the databases. What do you do now? How are you going to deal with this? How are you going to deal with that? Rather than glossing over it and assuming, okay, your, your, your characters are smart enough to figure that out. That was the question that I had, was less about nihilism and more, how do I make consequences meaningful without just completely paralyzing the players with endless planning and counterplanning? The, the thing is that a lot of people say that that's a part of the game, is that you don't get the luxury of ironclad planning, you just have to go in and um, accept that, you know, like people getting killed or getting getting uh, in legal trouble or whatever is part of the game, um, and that's fine. That's that's I know that's part of the appeal, but I do think that uh, after that, that to to a certain degree, um, I want. I guess, I guess my feeling is is that is that after a certain point, if if consequences are unavoidable, then they stop being consequences of your actions because if you if you were not if you were not able to, if it wasn't the result of something that you chose to do then it's not really a consequence it's more just like a thing that happens yes a, deter- a deterministic um well, i guess determinism does have consequences but it's not consequences the same way we talk about them get real philosophical here the question is how do you make um consequences feel like they are a result of the player's choices and not um, something that they're being beaten over the head with for engaging in the content that you presented them. Something that I've been trying to do with bringing consequences back around on the players is I don't is 
I, I try not to inflict any one particular consequence more than once, right? So if you if you fuck up once, it's not going to come back, you know, dropping on your head over and over and over again. It's it's going to come up once. And then you'll have to deal with it once and then move on from there. And it's not going to keep coming back at you. Unless you kick the can down the road, in which case that's that's a new choice and a new consequence. I think maybe consequences and this this has been brought up before on this show and on other shows. It is a good way to um, try and deal with the the natural tendency towards killing everything and breaking everything as the solution to Delta Green scenarios. Yeah, uh, particularly in fact, I can't remember who it was saying this. Somebody said in the context of Delta Green something about um, what you just said: using using forcing players to deal with consequences as a deterrent to the uh, the murder everything approach. The, the you know? violence okay, so you go to you... solve all your problems perspective. Yeah. So you, okay. So you use violence. You go and you shoot everybody. Okay. Now what? You're gonna just leave them all there? Yeah. The the body's there. It's got ID. It's got you know all this evidence. You're how on many, camera. How many or rounds whatever. did you fire? Are are you sure? Do you have all the shell casings? Are you sure? Well, let's not get into the whole forensics conversation, but whether those are actually ballistically matchable to the weapon. Yeah. Well, you know. Or you know, from another perspective, you know, how high profile is this event? Uh, what do you do? Like, uh, how much trouble are you going to be in for this? But I can see, I can see the point you're making, Mel, in, in that. How do you present that without incentivizing the players to ultra plan everything in exacting detail and waste hours and hours on it? Right. Well. The idea, the idea is that you're supposed to uh, hold their feet to the fire by establishing they don't have hours to plan and do everything right. They have to do it now and deal with the consequences. And it, then it circles back to, well, if they were crowbarred into it, then they're not really consequences of their actions. It's consequences of circumstances that they were placed in. And this is something that you told me at one point, Tom, that you felt that the scenario um, Sentinels of Twilight was very emblematic of what you liked about Delta Green because you said that it was uh, survival horror, where it's not about you choosing the approach that you want to take, it's you are forced into this fucked situation and you need to escape from it. Yeah, that's something I appreciate a lot in Delta Green scenarios. Uh, part of the reason, because I really enjoy horror, that I play the game, is to have my character threatened and my agency challenged. Like, I just really want to be thrown into a bad situation. And if the GM isn't going to do that, I want the opportunity to throw myself into a bad situation so that I can have the relief and the satisfaction of clawing my way back out of it. So I'm kind of I'm having a little trouble engaging with some of the stuff you guys are talking about just because it's a lot of like preparation and planning around risk. And I'm very risk friendly as a player. Oh, I'm the exact opposite. My feeling has always been that the world is dangerous enough without me adding uh, nonsense to my character's life. And that they're real people and want to protect themselves, and the awful situations will arise naturally rather than needing me to uh, prompt them. But, however, I will say that people like you are much more fun to run games for than people like me. Thank you. Yeah, I tend to see RPGs as more smoke and mirrors as essentially a performance being put on for my benefit and entertainment. So in the same way you and your games really like to cut to the stuff you find fun and interesting... I like to do the same thing as a player, except that often means running into a dark room or a toothy maw or something like that. And I do want to, because one of the things is that is that that's something that is usually mechanically punished, but is one of the more fun parts of the game. So that that maybe is is a, a framing that you would appreciate more than nihilism versus agency or whatever is the is mechanical punishment versus out of character reward for these actions. Because we talked about it before, how 
green box contents are hard to to get the players to use because they're afraid of of the danger even though it's fun to use magic items and figure out what they do one thing i remember from the the king and yellow rpg looking at the um at the development materials that they were posting on the blog was that they kept saying here's here's ways to make uh the player more willing to have these bad things happen to them to their character because they said that the classic example is getting um getting captured in a game most players would rather get killed than get captured and so that's a that's like a, a an element of the fiction or of the, the simulated game world that basically cannot come up in a regular rpg and so he said here's this defined mechanical like a, here's a card that establishes a defined mechanical trade-off for what happens if your character gets captured so it was it was essentially trying to to harmonize the the fun part with the mechanical disincentive, and I think that's something that's harder to crowbar into a game like Delta Green. But I, this is what I'm always thinking about: is how do I align uh, how do I align mechanics with with uh, with fiction? It reminds me of Incunabuli, which is sort of a a blog about a gothic horror RPG setting, and also a role playing game based on the blog. And as part of his playtest documents, Benton Molina, who is the guy who writes it all, he has a subsystem for horror and nightmares where essentially the player cannot be horrified or suffer any penalties for being scared unless they choose to. And if you do choose to, you get extra XP at the end of the session. That So that's a, that's a, a common approach to handling of um, negative traits in RPGs. I mean, I mean, not a common approach, but I've definitely heard of this before, where the GM cannot realistically remember which characters have ligma, which ones are colorblind, which ones have a so- an appropriate social stigma. And so the, ins- the the impetus is to provide a mechanical incentive for the players to to call out when those traits are inconveniencing them and preventing them from doing the things that are mechanically optimal. I think probably the closest equivalent in Delta Green would be to ping off of someone's disorders and uh, I guess provide them with some kind of incentive to do that more often. I'm not sure what that would look like. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I've reached a point where I'm almost completely dependent on players managing their own disorders because, uh, and and it, it's it's unsatisfying for me because um, I know that if I was at a real group, I'd be able to handle it very easily with a fixed group of players. But when I have a constant revolving door, I can't do it. I'm able to do it with characters I'm familiar with, but yes. for, for you know last minute walk-ins, not so much. I mean, I try, but yeah, there's not really any um, other side to that. Um, that operation, I guess, in at triggering a player's disorders is not only really to get out of it, except that it might be entertaining. I think I've said it before, uh, Delta Green is about, well, at least from the perspective of the people that designed it, in my opinion, it's about um, failing with style, or uh, I think I refer to it as like building the beautiful death spiral. And a part of that comes from the fact that there are more opportunities in this game for characters to lose sanity than there are for them to gain it back it's it's a very limited amount of sanity you're going to gain back either as a reward for doing the scenario or the mission really well or when you choose to regain it during home scenes and you're going to lose it much much faster than you'd ever hope to recover it it the game wants your character to lose their mind and wants you to have a good time doing it because it's fun to explore you know what happens when this super badass special operator is forced to overcome the obstacles that exist in their head in the form of their disorder. I think that the biggest contrast I see is between um, characters that have like that death spiral or whatever, but they have a really entertaining, solid hook there, and characters that don't. 
because I've seen characters that will get like infected with a magical virus or something or get a, a clever spell that they like to use a lot and you know get a get a magic item or magic knowledge or whatever and those characters are really fun to run into the ground like uh, someone like agent Mosin, the the librarian wizard or agent urbis the firefighter with the magic axe those characters are lots of fun to to play or um i guess the other example i can think of is is uh thompson the uh the cia analyst with the the um Air, For- Air Force officer, special investigation scientist in her head. But th- those ones are great. Those are lots of fun to play, to run on the ground. But I've also had characters where um, but my feeling was at the end that they I'd burned through most of their sanity, given them a stack of disorders, and I didn't have a lot to show for it. Like, they, was, they, they didn't have the combination of deformities that was fun or interesting. It just stacked up numeric penalties until they were basically unplayable. You're saying not all disorders are created equal. I'm saying not some, only are not all disorders are created equal. I think I'm saying that the death spiral is more fun when you get something to show for it. When it's not just a, deg- a degradation, it's a transformation into something other than human. I think we have talked about before how some of the a lot of the disorders are pretty boring. Just they trigger. Okay, you're basically out of the scene. Yes, you, you can't you can't play for the next hour. That's absolutely true. And that's not fun. But yeah, that's that's my that's my 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 thesis is that the death spiral is more fun when you have something to show for it. Consequences are more fun when you have something to show for it. Uh, I know that the Delta Green is supposed to be a game about just about taking things away and about decline, but I really think it's better when uh, there's some trade-off there where you're you're gaining something else by giving up your humanity or giving up the people you care about. It's like uh, like the Behilet. That's why it was my avatar for so long on the Discord. Is that the Behilet represents the ultimate. Uh, making the ultimate sacrifice to make your dreams come true. In the in the comic book series Berserk, there is a world of you know medieval shit and mercenaries and so on. But there's also demons in the world, and the demons have seeded the world with these objects called behilets that are like little eggs. And what happens is when you get the behilet, you can just carry it around with you, and it's just a little egg and it's got a little face on it. It doesn't do much. And then in the in your darkest hour or when you are close to death. Or when the opportunity presents itself, basically the demons or maybe the gods, you're not, it's never, it's not 100% clear, come down from space and say, we will make your wildest dreams come true if you sacrifice everything else that you care about. If you kill your children or your family or the entire, like all of your friends, your, the mercenary company that you work for, we will make you wealthy, we will make you powerful, we will make you a king, we will make you a god. And so that's the part that I like. I like giving people the opportunity to to become less and more than human in exchange for bad things happening to them. Yeah, I mean that sounds like some pretty awesome horror. And it could be right it could be totally fucking broken because like one of the things that Erebus does is that he's kind of unbalanced because he's got a magic axe that just kills anything and it doesn't ignore his supernatural damage resistance. So color out of space, bam. Uh, flying polyp, wham. Like kind of broken, kind of stupid, but yeah, like. You know what's what's more fun than tossing a pipe bomb into a room and then yelling that you're the the fire department EOD and everyone needs to get back because there's a bomb in there and then it goes well, off. Oh no shit! There's a bomb in there. <laughs> but that demonstrates one of the problems with this whole concept is that the guy who uh, the guy who gives up his humanity for magic powers or whatever can be kind of spotlight hogging and disruptive at best and at worst can be actively harmful to the group in ways that are not fun for the rest of the players. We were actually talking about this with uh, with this game called Mothership. Mothership is a science fiction horror game, and Mothership includes a mechanic where um, being around, if, you, if you are around an android, everyone in this setting hates androids so much that being around the android gives you disadvantage on fear saves. And so 
at the result in our game was that everyone fucking hated the android so much that when he tased himself un- in- into unconsciousness as part of his addiction to electrical stimulation, they just left him at the basement of the shaft and, and went home. Yeah, we left his ass there because that thing freaks me out. It's not a human and it'll never be a human. So it's a, there's a mechanic that is very strong. This is a very strong thematic mechanic, but is it like f- a fun game design to essentially say this character should not be in the room with any other characters? And there's ways that people around it get around it. Like a lot of people will have whenever when I read like what people do with this game, a lot of the times the Android will be in another room live streaming everything it sees to the players. And so they'll send it to scout stuff because it doesn't. Um, first of all, because they don't care if it dies, but also because it can breathe. It can breathe without oxygen. It doesn't get diseases. It doesn't get tired. It doesn't get sick. Seems like uh, you could get a lot of Twitch followers that way. Maybe you get TOS pretty quickly though. Well, it doesn't sound like that's much of a drawback to be playing that type of character. Like, why wouldn't everybody just pick that if it's so awesome? Well, because um, of what happened to the android when we played. Oh, yeah, he got uh, over overcharged by the healing nanotechnology. No, I mean, he and... got left behind. Oh, because yeah. Because people right. hated him. <laughs> he didn't really do anything that made us hate him. It was just the the, the fact that being around him made us more they afraid. Hated him. They hated him regardless of, of his actual behavior. I think we've strayed pretty far from the original discussion we, we uh, intended to come with here. Do we have any... I didn't wait, know what like... the original discussion was. Well, the argument I presented that Delta Green is about building a beautiful death spiral, I'd probably say Night Floors, because Night Floors, I mean, if you just keep playing it and if you just keep trying to do the thing and you don't abandon the mission, there's virtually no way that you're going to make it out of there intact with all your sanity. Um, there's like no way you'll make it out of Night Floors sane and alive. If you just keep trying to play the game, so by design, it kind of puts you into a fail state, but it's in a tremendously fun fail state, which is... That's a really good example, yeah, because all of the fun stuff that happens to you in the night floors that saps your sanity and drives you nuts is, is fun and amusing in a sort of, you know, absurdist horror kind of way. It's only done to you if you keep pressing on, and there's so many different examples in the book or in the scenario text for the handler to choose from. Until finally you decide, well, you've had enough. It's time for you to fall down an elevator shaft forever. Yes. That was hilarious. And I could not have gotten better if I had deliberately planned it, which I did not, which is what makes it hilarious. Hey, look, man, 90s Norman chose to go down that route. And that's why I wasn't mad. Just like I wasn't mad when uh, Agent Picker zapped himself to death. He wanted to get rid of that uh, whatever the thing was. But yeah, no, every time I've run Night Floors, I've had that sort of happen where players keep going just to see what happens next because they're like i know my sanity's going down but this this is really cool you know it was in a kind of horror way it was great when i played night floors is because i'd read the scenario but i didn't i was like you were were like Mel, did you read the scenario and i was like yeah but i didn't but i forgot um i I didn't read the part where how you get out of the night floors so we'll be fine (laughs) that's really funny i I did the same thing (laughs) did your character make it out yeah, he came out, and then he got killed by um, some Joker fucking throwing explosives around in a different scenario. Based. Yes. Tom, what about you? What's your scenario? What is my argument? Uh, my argument is, I guess, I just really like the stress and release cycle of horror, where it makes you really tense, and it gives you an opportunity to release that tension. I really like that, because real life is nothing like that. 
you just have a lot of slow grinding stress that just sticks with you too long. But but how can you how can you release that stress if you don't have any agency though? Well, the thing is, you take away agency or you challenge agency so that the player can have the satisfaction of taking it back and being able to act again. In Cosmic Core, maybe that's still within certain constraints, but you do get to choose how you react to these overpowering forces. Yeah, I think that's absolutely in theme. Well, as I said earlier, if nothing matters, then you get to decide what matters. Right, exactly. That's how I feel with what you mentioned earlier about how it ironically sort of magnifies the significance of everything you do. I mean, that's the whole, the whole like, the mission statement of Delta Green. Humanity exists in a universe that doesn't care, and we're probably going to get stomped by a god at some point that doesn't even know we're here. So fuck it. We're going to do whatever we can to kick the can down the road another day. Keep on fighting the good fight. All right, so Tom, what, what scenario emphasizes that? What I think of it is that I think of music from a darkened room, because I think it's all about the atmosphere. It's all about kind of building up the horror and making you work to find a way to release it. We've talked before about how you and Will have a recommended change for it, where you would allow the players to find the table with the ritual to banish the dark one or whatever by exploring. But I'm pretty sure I know why Detwiller wrote it the way he did. In his mind, just exploring the house and having bad stuff happen to you is the fun part and is something you're supposed to pursue. And then by the time the players are... Like night floors. Yeah, exactly. And by the time the players are absolutely sick perhaps literally to death, of this house, and they don't want to go back in, that's where you keep things going, by having the NPC come in, having found the table at, like, like an antiques roadshow. And that gives them the extra little push they need to go in one more time and finish it. Now, that's an interesting take on Night Floors, actually, is to have to have her find the ghost table arbitrarily whenever the players get sick of going back into the house. I agree, but then I still don't think the NPC is necessary for that. If you if you want to just have a timer that... that measures like how horrible has their experience been then after that amount of searching the house the house the tables in the house because i just feel like having an npc do everything for them and come up with deus ex machina that solves the mystery is i know i know that you don't like to talk about you know agency versus nihilism but i don't know i've i've, I've always been strongly against npcs doing everything important well maybe not always but i should be that's fine yeah i don't think there's one right way or wrong way I think that depending on what you want to emphasize thematically or mechanically, you could very easily just have the players figure it out themselves. Or if you want to luxuriate in the horror and the atmosphere, you can use that at the end as the last thing to push the players to the end game. Or, you know, they could also just take control of their own agency and be like, you know what? I'm not going to keep bashing my head against this wall, hoping to find a solution. I'm going to buy this house and I'm going to engage in a battle of wills against it to make sure nobody else goes inside to get killed. Yeah, or you could just burn it to the ground. Well, or not, yeah, burn it to the ground. But I mean, like that's with a bit of research, the agents should know that doesn't work. But I mean, I I don't I would not discount the the possibility of the way that the agents decide to deal with it is one of them buys the house and now he just owns the house and all he has to do is not you know not listen to the house, just you know spend the rest of his life being paranoid that every phone call might be from the house trying to trick him. But that's the sacrifice he's making to make sure that nobody else gets caught by this thing. Yeah, and I think that would be an interesting choice. I was being a little facetious when I mentioned burning it down, but I do think those are both things you could do where, like you said earlier, you just have to live with the consequences of that, whether that's the house keeps trying to slip its way into your life or the house just keeps growing back. I guess what you could do is you could burn the house to the ground and then buy the land and then not build anything on it. Like, tough shit, motherfucker, where are you going to make phone calls from now? 
Well, what if the phone calls are still coming from inside the house? Well, so here's the thing that I never got. Like, it says the land is consecrated to Nerlathotep. Why don't we dig out the land and put it in a box? I mean, that that's that's a good solution. I like that. Yeah, it's a con- it's consecrated ground, so let's dig up the fucking ground. You know what? If you if you if I if the agents got like a backhoe and excavated the plot of land, I'd allow it. Sure. There you go. And then there's just a box full of evil that you put in a green box and you put an elder sign on the box and then you put the box in the Middle East and then you give the box to what? an old wizard and then <laughs> oh, you boy. tend oh, no, no, no. four of your brightest ISIS video videographers <laughs> to go and steal it from him. So we're just exporting our problems onto poor brown people, is that what you're saying? Well, they're not. I mean, this guy's not poor. He lives in a fucking mansion and he's got a go- he can make his own gold using magic. Here's the thought, though. What if the plot of consecrated land goes all the way down to the center of the Earth? And, in fact, also goes all the way up into the sky and out into space? What if there's this giant beam of Narlathotep just sweeping across the cosmos every Yeah, it's like hours? a big pulsar, except instead it's just, like... It's just bullshit. Yeah. What if there's this giant magic-powered satellite in geosynchronous orbit over the oh Earth? Oh, my God! And that's the astronauts have to go up there to fix yes. it. Oh, wow. wow. We've just connected like five different scenarios. We just wrote a campaign. It's the campaign and, 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 and they'll never figure the solution out. I, I don't think we can top that, guys. Um, Melon, what's, uh, what's your thing? I had to, so we're trying to think of a scenario where the players get the opportunity to trade things for, um, special powers. Cause the thing is, like, the published scenarios that I like are not the ones that really exemplify any of the stuff I've been talking about. They're just ones I like cause I like them. You're saying, uh, your argument is that you want players to be able to train trade sand for cool stuff yes well, i mean there's extremophilia where you can go on a bitch in space adventure with Nigo. that is pretty good i think the problem with that is that it's difficult that's that one's not quite so poor it's hard to come back from that yeah i would propose to you my rewrite of a uh, fresh pageant where players can take the magic drug uh oh, to- that's that's that, that's good but if we're doing fictional if we're doing like fictional homemade scenarios i'm probably just going to grab out of my own pile Oh, okay, what about um, what about Last Things Last? Last Things Last is an interesting one because if I recall correctly, you can get magic knowledge from the monster, but um, in game terms, that's just bumping your own natural score. I mean, I don't see why Marlene couldn't teach him a ritual or something. No, well, because probably because the ritual rules weren't written when that scenario was written. Uh, you might be right, but I mean, she could tell you like I don't know where to find books. Yeah, I guess. Or like Nazi gold or something? Well, the Nazi gold is with the deep ones at the bottom of the sea. Oh, right. Well, she could tell you about that. I found a scenario that I like about sacrificing stuff for um, getting powers that I wrote, but it's funny because it's one that is super railroaded. It's called uh, Chopstick Headcount. Oh, is that the the one with uh, the brain-eating? Yeah, it's the one where you get um, you have to go to a dinner party and eat a guy's brain with and drink... Um, ghoul juice so that you can get his memories yeah don't you basically put a bunch of people with guns in front of them and also take their guns away from them before they're allowed to go in well you can you can go if you can go there with your guns if you are good at hiding them but yeah it's it's difficult because uh there's not a whole lot the players can do for most of the scenario the main thing though is they is have that you to should, eat right well no they don't they can get away with not doing it there's a number of ways the main thing is that well you 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 yeah, I guess so. But that one that one was fun for me because it is a the having the alternate personality in your head is like very harmful to your mental faculties, but is also gives you power because you have all that person's knowledge that you can use at will. 
Well, sometimes. You can use it to him, but I don't know that it would help because that was his character that it was based on. Hey-o. Uh, Will, what is your ideal scenario to demonstrate your beliefs? Well, I'm not sure I really was able to nail down a composition for myself. Well, let's explore that for a minute then. Uh, you talk a little bit about kicking the can a little bit further down the road. Uh, why should Delta Green agents keep moving forward? Why Why would Delta Green agents keep moving forward? Well, because they choose to, I guess. Which sounds like kind of a glib answer, but I mean, I think that's I think that's that's how you deal with uh, an uncaring cosmos that doesn't give a shit that you exist or even seem to notice that you exist. Now, what scenario exemplifies that? Well, that's a hard thing to really exemplify with a scenario. Um, Is it uh, Observer Effect kind of like that? Um, in a way. I don't know. I've actually never read Observer Effect. I just know that there's a lot of... It's one of those scenarios that people cry bullshit about a lot. Well, yeah, no, it's no, the one that I do. Yeah, uh, yes. No, mo- most people don't don't care about it one That's, way or the other. Maybe I'm just uh, attributing your voice being very loud to a lot of people. Um, I want to say Night Floors, but Jake, you already said Night Floors. I mean, doesn't mean we can't share the same idea. Well, it's the thing is because if I were to explain the way in which Night Floors fits that that paradigm, it would sound very similar to what you said. The 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 scenario continues for as long as the agents decide they want to keep trying to find Abigail Wright until they decide that they have to cut their losses and leave. That's one of the only scenarios where uh, it's okay for uh, agents to cut their losses and leave because that's the way it's designed to end, right? There's not a whole lot of other scenarios that allow players to exit. The thing about Night Floors is, is that it doesn't really communicate to you that what you're trying to do is even possible. Yeah, you're just kind of there to figure out what's going on. Yeah, I don't know. I can't really pin down um, a scenario that really captures that. Because, I mean, in a sense, they all kind of play to that in various ways. What's that uh, Alphonse quote about uh, we're cowboys and outlaws and we've been keeping this little green ball of shit alive for a little bit longer or something like that? Is that is that uh, the perspective you're coming at this from? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I, I don't know that mine can be really exemplified in the scenario. In fact, it might just be yours, Jake. But like, it's a different a different uh, twist on it. Oh, uh, maybe um, the one that I think of when I think of your the thing you talked about is uh, New Age because New Age is one where uh, nothing the players do matters. I hadn't read New Age. Okay, in New Age, you can destroy Scientology. And it gives you the thrill of destroying Scientology, but the ultimate resolution of the plot is the same regardless of what you do. Don't they get, like, yeeted into space or something? No. I mean, you you, you, you can get a teleporter that'll send you to a satellite orbiting um, the Elder God Gro- Groth, G- G- the, the Eyeball Man, and you, a living planet, and you, he's, he's a big guy, but what you can do is you can go... Is this the one you always talk about when you talk about how old Delta Green is a lot pulpier? Yes. But what you can do in this scenario is you can go to the satellite, you can like go fuck up Scientology, you can go to the satellite and disable the thing that's calling Groth over to Earth, and then he'll leave Earth alone. But the thing is, is that the Migos' plan is such that if you don't do that, they'll tell him to go away anyways. Oh boy. So like that's actually good. Fucking me. Basically, the only thing that changes is that you get to kill some Scientologists, and then even in the book, it says that the federal government cracking down on Scientology makes it more popular. So there's really kind of no point to anything that you do. It's other other than like the absurdist saying that I just enjoy doing this thing of um, being in the ATF and shooting unarmed people. <laughs> I joined Delta Green just to kill people. Yes. Yes.
I recently backed the Fate of Cthulhu Kickstarter, which is the one where it's like uh, your characters are Terminators that come from the past to stop the apocalypse from happening. Uh, and one of the bonuses that came with that is the Fate Horror Toolkit. And uh, I decided, you know, just to peruse it and see what things would be good to rip off and duplicate inside of Delta Green. And I wanted to share that with you guys and see what you thought about some of the topics that that book in particular covers. And I think, Tom, you're familiar with it and a couple other like Fate Horror supplements. So I've never actually played any Fate or Fate Core, but I'm dimly familiar with it. I have uh, a copy of Fate Core and a copy of the Atomic Robo role-playing game and one or two other supplements for Fate. I've played one game of Fate and... um... It was kind of a meme, but I think the guy did a great job running it. I didn't, I didn't love the system, but the, when the guy put the game together, it was. Um, I think he was. He, he did a great job just because this is a dude at my uh, RPG club who um, I want to see this guy fucking run on our armies because his talent was always to run like an endless, uh, rich narrative world that expanded before your eyes based on the actions and desires of the players. Uh, I never played Fate either. I'd only been passive, passively familiar with it before I looked into this book. And uh, it's kind of one of those uh, what the players say is goes uh, type games, which is fun and cool. But it's a different direction when you're trying to run investigative games. Because usually with the investigative games, the uh, the GM is the one who kind of dictates what happens when and where can't really make up the game world on the fly. You have to have a pre-existing sense of what's going on. Right, and you walk in basically just going through scenes, one scene after another, is how most investigative games go. But uh, let's talk about the book. Uh, the first chapter, uh, the thing that stood out to me the most was the, the chapter on moral dilemmas, because we talked about that before uh, when we discussed Last Things Last. The moral dilemma there at the end not being a very good one because it's a choice of do I want to set this monster on fire or do I not? Because of course you want to set the monster on fire, right? I think in fairness to last things last, there are a lot of people who have gotten a lot of mileage out of that out of that situation. But yeah, I would I would agree that that's not a good dilemma because at the end of the day, it's just you have to kill someone you don't want to, and that's pretty common in Delta Green because people say run metamorphosis after last things last and so it's a scenario where you have to kill someone you don't want to fall by a scenario where you have to kill someone you don't want to and then you know maybe you play observer effect where you gotta kill some people you don't want to i'm a firm believer in the metamorphosis uh tack on you know you're not wrong but it, i think it works really well because it's it, it flips the script on how you come to that conclusion and it flips it right away which is always interesting to watch I am not so much a fan of the metamorphosis add-on, but I do like something else you did with Last Things Last, Kevin, where once the players figured out that Marlene wasn't actually a human, uh, Marlene immediately offered, like, okay, I can give you all the ISIS commanders' locations and names and all their shit if you let me live. And I think that's a much more interesting dilemma because it actually kind of plays on the morals of a Delta Green agent. Like, are you going to let this unnatural monster live so you can act, try to help people or are you going to stick with the mission and recognize that this can only go badly right rule number one of deal with the devil the devil has to offer you something you actually fucking want well, i wanted a golden fiddle but i just had to beat the devil at a musical uh, battle oh, <laughs> opposed art fiddle rolls with marlene the, the Fate Horror Toolkit actually has a section on that where they discuss uh, this concept called principles versus need. 
So uh, if your guy believes that what they're about to do is wrong, but they need to do something because of what they can get out of it, the choice there is they're going to stick with their guns or they're going to do it just this one time. Um, so that's that's the, you know, if we keep her alive, I can learn where all the ISIS people are. And surely that's like utilitarianism tells me that that's the greater good, right? So I, I guess uh, only because I, I'm not familiar with the Fate Horror Toolkit, uh, can we step kind of sideways on it for a moment? Sure. This may come as a surprise to people, so I hope you're all sitting down, dear listeners. But oh boy, I don't tend to incorporate horror into my Delta Green games. I know, shocking. Uh, the same person who doesn't really know anything about the mythos. Um, but I don't do it because I'm ignorant of the system. I do it just because I don't, I've never found a way to capture it. The closest I've ever gotten was good good audio cues, but that was really more just like tone setting, and it wasn't horror. So like, what is a when you add horror to your scenario, like how does that actually play out? What is the goal there? What's the what does it look like? Uh, Tommy, have anything? Uh, there's another game, Rats in the Walls, where it says you want to create an environment where your players can be scared. You don't just want to force them to be scared. And I think the thing is, like for me personally, there's kind of a rush that comes with that buildup of tension. And then the release of tension when it's over is really satisfying. There's actually, to bring it back around to the Fate Toolkit, there's actually a chapter about doomed horror, about what how you can play games where you know from the start that you're all going to die and why you would keep playing that game anyway. And so there are three reasons it provides. Uh, First reason is, you know, you're not going to make it to the end, but you want to see how far you can get just like to compete with yourself, I guess. The second one is you want to solve the mystery. Like even if you can't survive the scenario, you don't want to know what is trying to kill you or why these things are happening to you. And the third one is you want to kind of throw a light into the future, I guess is the word. You want to achieve some goal that uh, will outlast your own lifetime. So the example is like, maybe you can't survive the scenario, but you can get your kids away from this threat so they can live happily ever after. And so there's still kind of an assertion of agency there that you are able to defy it even if you can't survive the events. Because I know that's something Melon, at least, uh, takes objection to to horror. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, My character is a real person who wants to survive, and uh, everything else is secondary. This is that article you shared, Tom, on that failure-tolerated website? Yeah, yeah. I found another blog post that also kind of ties into the idea of dilemmas where the thesis the thesis of it was uh when i was in college there was a graph being shared around on facebook that was like study sleep party choose two and this guy's was it's a horror scenario survive solve the mystery save the day choose two right Uh, i think uh on, on the blog post it says uh Pick 1.5 and uh, round up sometimes if you're really, really good at it. So I'll say this. Um, I know that I just objected to it, but I do like this post. And the reason for that is if you all haven't noticed, I like running games much more than I like playing them. So this is a fine thing to do to other people, just not to me. So you would violate the, the NAP before you would have the NAP violated against you? Listen, if you are looking at me with intent to do me harm... The photons reflected off you are striking my person, therefore violating the non-aggression principle, and I am justified in retaliating. What if what if the person is merely traveling? They are traveling through the area occupied by my light cone, and 
as a conscious dreamer, I am treasurer of my own currency. So uh, by doing so, they are inviting any retribution I care to bestow upon them. Uh, getting back on topic, this uh, this article, uh, survive the terror, solve the mystery, or save the day, pick two. Um, that is uh, just to go back because we were talking about dilemmas is one of the things the Fate Horror Toolkit talks about. Um there is your dilemma right there. What do you want to do given the choice? Would you rather survive, solve the mystery, or save the day? And, and I think that a dilemma is really good because it does actually give the players to a, a chance to assert their agency. Like, something bad is going to happen, but you get to choose what bad thing happens and what kind of effects it has. Like, I think because all of us like slightly different scenario types, this would be really good for all of us. Because if you want to solve the mystery and you want to get into the intellectual exercise of it, you can do that and just try to avoid putting yourself in as danger. Whereas if you're more into the survival horror side, you can try to do save the day or just survive and you'll get your thing that way. So this kind of attitude really puts uh, a lot of control back into the player's hands. And... Uh... You can couple this up with another type of dilemma that the horror toolkit outlines for you, divided loyalties. So let's suppose for a moment that the four of us are a Delta Green uh, working group. Tom, uh, given the choice, what would you rather do of those three? Solve the mystery, uh, save the day, or survive? I'm very much a save the day kind of player. Okay. What about you, Kevin? Survive. And Melon? Survive. See, all right. Yeah, I know it really. Uh, So we have already uh, the party is divided on what they want to do, and then there's someone else that might be undecided as to what exactly is the most important part of the scenario. So when you divide loyalties up like that, uh, you force that dilemma on people when they're in a conflict with each other. What do you do? You just you split the party, and then uh, Tom's Tom's guy can can go save the day and Melon and I will go survive and everybody's happy. Well, the thing about the horror toolkit is when they discuss this, they want you to try and keep the players as opposed to each other as possible when they decide to handle it in different ways. So in the example, it's not just you guys running off and me doing my own thing. It might be, I take your car to go save these people. And now you need to, you're shooting at me while I'm trying to drive That's away. That's good. The problem with queuing up those dilemmas, and this is something that I've found by designing scenarios that are designed to put the players against each other, is that usually when you go out of your way to set up these challenges, it ends up just being the guy with the biggest firearm skill gets his way. Yeah, who has the highest decks and the most firearms? I don't necessarily like deliberately queuing that up because it feeds into something that we complain about ad nauseum on this show, which is the prevalence of special operators and federal agents over anthropologists and scientists. That's a good point. Even when you are tooling fate to be more dangerous and more lethal, it's still just not built for that the way Delta Green is. No, I think Delta Green's worse. I think in Delta Green, um, a, a guy with a good firearm skill and an automatic weapon can wipe out the entire party in a single turn. Called this yeah. the, pers- the Persuader. So that guy is going to get his way, whatever he wants. And that's why I think that this framework needs a bit of adjustment. Or um, It's why I'm hesitant to deliberately foster inter-party conflict. I've had scenarios in the past that, that did it. 
and I've come to the conclusion that it's not satisfying unless you're using pregens that are designed to be disposable, because otherwise it's, I lost my character because I disagreed with a guy who had a better firearm skill than me. Next time I'm going to bring a guy with a better firearm skill. I just want to clarify, I am agreeing with you there. I okay, think... okay, I'm sorry, I fucked up then. No, no worries. My point was just that a guy who is specced out to be really good at firearms in Fate is uh, still a lot closer to a guy who is specced out to study old books than in Delta right. Green. Right, there's a in ocean fate, of difference. In Fate, it's like a bell curve centered around zero with a maximum of plus four to any skill. Yeah. And aspects are all pretty much equally mechanically viable. The only difference is the narrative text associated with them. So it's still, uh, and maybe I'm just not good at this because I, I don't I'm do much horror and I don't watch much horror or whatever, but it feels like we're, we're still really more talking more about like how, how to introduce tension and, and conflict. I don't really think I've gotten a good sense of so like how to be tension is horrible. Um, horror, horror is, I mean, it's a different thing. If you come to the table, uh, Kevin, with a character who is not afraid of anything, then you know he's not afraid to die. He's gonna go down swinging. It's gonna be a different experience for you than if you go in with a guy who isn't so good at defending himself, because uh, you've chosen the path for your uh, character to be like a like a like a tougher guy player buy-in is absolutely necessary for horror so let me let me try an example uh because i agree with you and i, I just and i do truly think or i would like to see if there's a way to become better at it so let's say that i as a human i'm not afraid of spiders right no spider game you run for me is ever going to have a feeling of horror because i i can't get in the mindset of someone i can't really truly get in the mindset of someone who's afraid of spiders um but so are, are there other are ways where you can make that happen or are there ways you can like no matter how tense you make it spiders aren't going to do it for me so like if even if my character like my character might be afraid of spiders and i might be role-playing that but i'm not getting that like i, I feel like i feel like in order to truly have a, a game that feels kind of like like, a, like you ran a horror game i want i want as a person to feel that adrenaline dump or that tension you know that cold sweat of like oh my god what's happening it's freaking me out you know i don't I want to sleep with the lights on tonight that kind of thing so it almost has to be separated. You have to really get play to the player, not the character. Almost Is that seem get that. That makes sense. Yeah, uh, like like I said, it takes player buy-in, not character buy-in. Although those two can kind of be synonymous sometimes. I think that's kind of an issue. Just being a fan of horror, anything in general, like just because you enjoy horror fiction or horror media, that doesn't necessarily mean everything you watch is going to scare you. Like at some point, you're just going to become inured to it. I guess. Yeah, so, so don't... like the question is like, what what can you do as a handler? My only advice is is good music. Like, are there things you can do as a handler to make your games feel scary? <laughs> like, because the Fate Horror Toolkit doesn't seem to be going down that road. That seems like it's more geared towards adding tension to a game and character conflict and that kind of stuff. I disagree, though. I think that is a part of horror is setting up that kind of conflict that generates that kind of tension where there's not necessarily a winning scenario where you have to choose the better of multiple bad options. And again, I mean, I, I come at this as someone who doesn't really do it and hasn't really, hasn't really been done to them. So I'm generally trying to seek out the, the good advice and the truth here. Uh, and maybe you're right. Maybe it is, it is more about player buying and making the characters feel scared. Uh, you know, a couple of the other touchstones that the book mentions are, um, Uncertainty and suspense, uh, disempowerment, isolation, 
Um, and all of those do require a certain amount of buy-in. But imagine uh, your same Rudy Tootie point-and-shooty guy uh, in a situation where pointing and shooting doesn't do anything for you. You know, your bullets phased right through the ghost man or the, the Mego from another dimension. Uh, that's a little bit disempowering, right? That can be scary in the right context, especially if you love and deeply care about your, your character that you crafted. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I can't see how that would be scary to me as a human being, but I, I fully admit that that might just be me. If you come expecting to be scared, I think that you'll more likely to be scared. You know, like uh, difference in attitudes and approaches uh, of the game. So I don't know. I'm gonna find a way to scare you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. I mean, good. I, I want to feel stuff. I already kind of know one of Melon's uh, things. The What's kitchen. that? The fucking uh, trip, trip to trophobia. Yeah, the... if you do post that in Discord, you are for sure banned. See, it's it's absolutely wow. terrifying to him, right? It's like the little uh, lotus seed pod holes. Yeah, uh, uh, for even, those for I those mean, of you who don't know, go on Google.com and type in lotus pods into a Google image search. You will be very happy with what you find. And if you don't wow. agree with that, if you don't agree with me by the end that anyone who posts that deserves to be fucking banned, then you are not a human being. Trigger warning, Jesus. Look at <laughs> Melon trying to inflict his psychological torment on other people. Look at Melon Bread trying to prove a point about why Jake should not have brought this up. I was thinking this would actually be a good chance to bring up uh, No Exit, that fate horror scenario I brought up in the doc. Okay, yeah, I, I looked into it briefly. Um, it does have like a Night Floors vibe, right? Yeah. So hearing Kevin talk about how he really struggles to get scared, he just doesn't think he could manage it. That makes me think of a horror scenario for Fate called No Exit by Shoshana Kasek. I think it's in Fate Worlds in on Fire or Worlds in Shadow, one of those two. And the basic premise is, if you're familiar with the Delta Green scenario, Night Floors... It's essentially if you were one of the residents of the night floors and now you're trying to escape it. But one of the things is that for character creation, you explicitly come up with a bunch of aspects relating to past events in your character's life. And then your character starts the game with amnesia. So you can't actually use any of your aspects at the start. And a major plot point uh, or major plot points is that the characters are trying to regain their memories as they navigate this apartment complex. It's like that. That sounds fun. I just I, I feel like I, I just have. And again, I fully admit that it might just be my own blockage, but I'm not sure how I would make that scary for people. I do think it sounds interesting and fun and a cool challenge. Yeah, it's it's it is leaning towards psychological horror, so I think it needs a lot of buy-in. And a lot of like you and the GM kind of probing the characters' memories and going back and forth on that. I think it could be really successful, but it does. I wonder how it would work in play, just having never seen or heard or read of it being run before. Just like you already know kind of what's going on in your character's backstory. So, how does that work? But it's also very Carcosa y. It's a very surreal environment that is reacting to your emotional state. So, that might be another thing where a really clever GM can work off what you're going through. Yeah. It also- all, the, all the horror, because I've, I've been scrolling through it here, it looks like, like the things that are going to make this scary to 
the individual player have to be chosen by that player. Like it's uh, you're telling the the game master what buttons to push here. Yeah, for sure. And you have a couple of other tools. Like you have there are other NPCs who are either trapped residents of the building or they actually work for the building or they are part of the quote-unquote management or like the shadowy quasi-supernatural threat running everything. So you've got a lot of levers to use, but the actual pivot points are, like you said, kind of determined and advanced by the player. So that does kind of seem to boil down to something that I think you've talked about before, Kevin, that, you know, with your... Some some of this might have to be tailored personally to the people that you play the game with. Uh, maybe it won't work so well at uh, a con game as it would as knowing that your friend is afraid of lotus seed pods, as an example. Or I don't know what Tom or and what Kevin are afraid of. Nobody knows what I'm afraid Exactly. Uh, the first rule of the internet is to never let anyone know that you're mad about something. And the second rule is to never let people know what you're afraid of. I do think it's true that it would be harder to achieve horror in a convention scenario, not even because of the environment necessarily, but just because you aren't as familiar with the players. The players aren't as familiar with their characters if you're using pregens. I think if you want to do something with it, you would need a very small, specific number of pregens that are really fleshed out and are designed explicitly for like the specific scenario you're running. So it seems like the the advice so far is just use stuff that you know your players are are afraid of in real life. Like, how do you? Are there any? Is there any way to introduce that in a game other than being like, you open the door and it's full of spiders? Ah, scary. Because I feel like you're not gonna do it for me. But it's like, how do you set the? Uh, and again, I come, the only thing I come back to is music. But that's there's got to be more to it. How do you set the set the stage for a good horror scenario? How do you keep that going? I mean, I think a big part of it is kind of perversion of the normal and the natural. Uh, Like they mentioned this in the Handler's Guide, and I've seen in a bunch of other places talking about horror, but it's like the blood-stained copy of People magazine on the table when you're walking around the murder scene. Just something evil has intruded upon everyday life, and you take something familiar and something might even be a source of joy, and you pervert it. You make it a sign of danger or strangeness. I saw that. There was a post on Dennis's Devilish blog from a while back where you take, like you said, you take the mundane and you inject something scary into it. Like uh, the monster is after your agent while you're shopping at Target and it's knocking over the aisles of food as you're trying to run away from it. Or uh, in Delta Green, you can involve the agent's bonds in on the, the, the scary thing because... Not only then do you have a mechanical representation of the danger, but also, you know, it's it's another point in time where agency matters. What what are you going to do when the horror comes and it's personal and it's in your everyday life? I don't necessarily know how relevant this is, but it makes me think of a very weird, weird fiction story I read one time. Go on. It's about like there's this circular staircase made of stone that just goes down into the earth and it's like world famous people come and they walk down it certain ways and then they come back and there's this guy who stocks up on like food and water and brings a sleeping bag and for days on end he just keeps going down the staircase and far beyond anyone who 
isn't it like just visiting it and going down and coming back and at a certain point he runs out of food and water and he realizes he's not going to be able to make it back up to the actual earth and he just keeps going down and down and it's just this really simple thing like this staircase that continually just goes down deeper into the earth and it's so simple but it's also such a violation of everything you think should be true about the world why didn't he turn around when he hit bingo fuel uh i think he was he came with the intention of just like committing suicide that way just keep going down into the earth until he couldn't go back any further or he didn't have the resources to go back i think that works great as a weird fiction prompt i think for like an rpg after a certain point the player is going to assume that there's no value in continuing downward and just can turn around and go back up well i'm not saying literally translated but it's that kind of strangeness that kind of it breaks all the rules of the what the world should be like and oh i absolutely understand that but i i think it's beyond just literally translating i think the lesson there is maybe that um certain weird fiction or horror fiction tropes like the futility of a certain action don't necessarily translate to RPGs because as a player, if I'm picking up signals from the boss that the action I'm undertaking is futile, I'm going to stop it and do something else. Um, it's not the futility though. It's just the inherent strangeness and how this one strange thing can warp uh, the thinking of everyone around it, how people react to it. Like, it's just being there is so terrifying. It doesn't have to be a player who's going down there if someone else just keeps going and going and going. Like, I've mentioned this, I think, in our episode about what draws us to Delta Green, but that's kind of my attitude, is that once you know the supernatural is real in the Delta Green universe, then everything else goes out the window. It's just inherently warps everything around it so the knowing that the monsters are real is an info hazard yeah in a very real sense so was there any any advice for players in a horror scenario and i I guess i also should say that if you're gonna do a horror based scenario you should let your players know ahead of time some people if they truly do have a phobia don't want to deal with that nonsense so that's a little bit of the social contract we've discussed yeah the horror toolkit does talk about a couple of the tools for situations like that the x card the script change uh those are different like safe space style rules for horror games because nobody wants to be a jerk and you know actual like reopen some psychological damage somebody might have at a game table when you're all trying to have a good time uh, but you asked about, like, does does this thing have tips for playing uh, in horror games? Is that what you asked? Yeah, or do we have any tips for people who are going to play in a horror game? Um, hmm. Play a character with a flaw that can put you into an interesting situation uh, related to the horror. Play a character with a... Hmm, how do I put this? Play a character whose ideals can be challenged. Uh, in the course of a horror thing, just to circle back around to that, um, the the failure tolerated website, uh, survive, solve, or save. Um, play characters' ideals can be challenged because uh, if you roll up a guy whose one of his motivations is uh, no one gets left behind, and then that character gets put into a situation where 
they can leave somebody behind in order to save themselves or to save the day, then you get to see, you know, it's it's, uh, exploration into the psychological side of things. And that can be pretty scary to think about. I'm trying to think of how I would respond if someone started doing shit to deliberately, like, piss me off. Because maybe not necessarily in context of my phobias, but every time someone has done that to me in the past, has said, hey, I'm doing this to make Melbourne angry, I've responded by being as destructive as possible and tried to uh, send their scenario straight in the trash. Yeah, I think uh, I talked a little bit earlier about like not being a jerk uh, at the table. And the book does say, like on the very first page, horror doesn't excuse being horrible. Um we're playing horror isn't a license to behave horribly. Uh, we're here to explore scary stories where you have to deal with horror events, uh, terrifying threats, emotional and physical vulnerability. But it's not about uh, reinforcing bigotry or tropes or trying to press all the wrong buttons for the people at your table. Which, you know, that might be in contrast to what I said about, uh, you know, if I know that someone is afraid of something uh, you can broadcast that ahead of time and say, hey, I was thinking about putting this thing in and I know that sometimes makes you uncomfortable or you are ripe with being made uncomfortable at some point in the near future. There was also two pieces of advice I enjoyed for making NPCs sympathetic. Making NPCs what? Sorry, you cut out there. Sympathetic. Sympathetic, okay. The first one is called We Are A Lot Alike and it kind of taps on the trope of the villain pointing that out like oh we're not so different you and i but the useful part is that it also says if you want to get players to like an npc you should give them skills or resources that complement the player's skills or resources so the example they give is your character or one of your players creates a character who's really good at a bunch of different languages Well, now your campaign has an NPC who has a bunch of tomes in different languages, but he can't read them himself. So he invites your players to take a look at them for him. And so that player is probably going to get a close relationship with that NPC. And the other one is the Benjamin Franklin effect, which is based on a quote from Benjamin Franklin. I'm not going to repeat directly, But the premise is that you tend to like people more when you do favors for them than when they do favors for you. So the idea is that you present the players with an NPC who needs some help. And then it's not completely trivial, but it's pretty quick for the players to solve this problem or help them out. And then they get to see pretty quickly the NPC being really grateful towards them. And that can be the seeds of a relationship too. someone they're familiar with and have a history with and they like enough to come when they're in trouble. Uh, That reminds me of something that I read about a long time ago about uh, it was like one of those like BuzzFeed, like shared news articles or whatever. But it was like ways to get out of a traffic ticket, um, which I would absolutely not be swayed by if I already had my mind made up. But anyways, um, they said one of the one of the ways to get out of a traffic ticket was when the officer comes up to you and you're you know interacting with him or whatever. You ask him for a favor. You can be like, "Oh, I'm a little lost. Can you tell me how to get to this destination?" And instead of uh, you know the thing being about what what you did wrong to cause the traffic stop, it shifts towards how can I how can the the cop help someone out? And it's supposed to like you said build sympathy for the person because. You know, maybe they made that bad turn because they're lost and an idiot. 
and I should feel sorry for them. That's pretty good. I like that. Giving player advice for the RPG of life. <laughs> what What is life if not a big role playing game? We all have stats. Mine are bad. My loot My loot rolls have been pretty bad lately. Yeah, I sympathize with that. Anything else? Any other ideas? No, I guess if you're listening and you have advice we didn't talk about, let us know. Uh, we could probably re- revisit horrors. I feel like I still don't have a good... It's, it's going to sound harsh when I say I got nothing out of this, but that's not what I meant. Uh, I still don't have a good idea if I want to, if I really feel like running a horrible scenario. I'm not sure I've gotten any closer, but I do want to. So let's see if we have any other ideas and we'll revisit it at some point. That's all we have this week. In the episode description, you'll find links to the Night of the Opera subreddit and Discord server, and to the Greenbox social media pages. Share with us your spooky gaming stories or favorite horror set pieces. We've also included a link to Incunabuli, the horror prose blog RPG setting that Tom mentioned. From all of us at the Greenbox, thank you for listening to this Halloween episode. Until next time. Until next time.